South Coast Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz, the silent assassin Matt Costa, not with us, but eventually, someday, we hold out hope. We should take up a collection of, uh, you know, let's let's get Costa out of having to work Saturday night's fund. Think it would work? It, it may. I've been trying to get a collection going for years to make it so that none of us have to work but <laughs> so far has not been working i'm also going to try and talk directly into the front of my microphone tonight because it sounds a lot better than when i talk into the side of it over here or over here or over here yeah although for those of you out there listening in mono on am it doesn't really matter but we are here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every saturday night and we've got a heck of a show for you tonight because i gotta tell you I've been spending the last oh, month or so talking about haunted objects on a semi-regular basis. And tonight, for a little while at least, we get to hear somebody else talking about haunted objects uh, with our guests tonight, Juliet Snowden and Styles White. They are the writers of the upcoming film The Possession, which will be released by Lionsgate Films on August 31st. Now, this movie... These guys... Hey. No, no. Tunes will change I don't think if they develop profitable, no. successful drugs... For treatment of multiple diseases. I was thinking about cutting that guy off, but I just wanted to see what else he had to say. Okay. I actually think that, uh, you know, drugs will have nothing to do with the enjoyment of this film. Somebody such as yourself, Moniz, you may disagree. It depends upon who's prescribing them. You're from the 70s. You remember what it was like to go out and see Tommy and the wall uh, under the influence of... Various substances. Yes. Yeah. But uh, no, tonight we're going to be talking with the the, the writers of the possession. I, I want to find out more about uh, the process of the whole. You know, we see a lot of these horror movies that are coming out now. And uh, I should also mention, by the way, we have Andrew Lake with us here in the studio. Good evening, Andy. How are you? Howdy. You, you like how I just completely overlooked you in the intro? No, there? I knew you'd get to me. <laughs> I'll get to you sooner or later. <laughs> but uh, w- uh, w- for those of you who uh, are not horror movie fans. Uh, you may shy away from seeing some of these flicks, but we do hear in a lot of the advertising for them based on a true story. Actually, Andy, give me your announcer voice. Say based on a true story. Based on a true story. There we go. Much better. And so uh, <laughs> this, these stories, these films that are out there now, you know, they're loosely based on true stories. And so I'm always interested in finding out the process of how they go from an actual paranormal tale that's out there and how they make that into a fictitious 90 to 120 minute movie. And so uh, that's one of the things I want to talk about with, uh, with styles and Juliet tonight, because the possession is based on a true story. And it's the story of the Dybbuk box. Now, for those of you who might not patrol eBay, searching for haunted objects in the midst of writing a book, such as uh, myself and Chris Balzano have done, the Dybbuk box case is, uh, is pretty, Oh, 
it's controversial to say the least. Uh, not only the immediate story uh, that the film is based on, but some of the other stories that have popped up over the last few years regarding these spirits. And, and we'll get into all that coming up in a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll let uh, the writers of the film give us a little bit of a background on the Dybbuk boxes. But, I mean, go back to The Exorcist, okay? I mean, that was probably one of the uh, first films that I can remember being a horror movie that we can say based on a true story. And that's it's actually based on the book, which is based on a true story, where there wasn't a lot of... Uh, tearing apart of the original source material. You know, you can look at a film like the Amityville Horror and people want to tear apart the book that the movie is based on. And the book, of course, could be a complete fabrication depending on which side of the story you listen to. But with the Exorcist case, you know, people pretty much left uh, Blatty's story alone that he had ad adapted the tale of the little boy in St. Louis in the 50s. It was late 50s, was it, or the early mm -hmm. 60s? who was uh, apparently possessed by a demon, perhaps even the devil, and he basically just retold that story and changed it from a boy to a girl. And nobody really questions that original story too much. I mean, I, I have seen a lot of the true story behind the Exorcist-type specials, uh, but nobody ever calls them out on it. And so I think that that's something that we got to keep in mind when we're talking about based-on-a-true-story horror movies is... You know, the, the original source material is usually questionable. So if the writers are taking a little bit of artistic license with it, well, I'm fine with that, as long as the story is good in the end. And it seems like this one uh, is going to be pretty good. It's, it's coming from a good pedigree. Uh, Juliet and, and Styles, uh, they have actually uh, been writers on a few films together. They wrote Knowing and Boogeyman together. So, you know, they, they've got the, the street cred in the horror world. That's for sure. And I do want to talk to them about another project they apparently have coming up. And that's a remake of Poltergeist. Ooh. Yeah, those of you who listen to this show know how I feel about Poltergeist. It's, uh, it's pretty perfect as far as I'm concerned. Definitely uh, one of the mainstays of uh, horror paranormal. The, yeah. I, I guess I have to say, though, now that we live in the Blu-ray generation... There is one part of it that is not perfect, and that's the scene when uh, the paranormal researcher goes into the bathroom after eating the steak with the maggots in it to throw up, and he starts peeling off his face. And <laughs> I thought it looked pretty wooden on VHS in the 80s, and now on Blu-ray, like, it's, it's pretty bad. But uh, that aside, it's, it's kind of the perfect film for me when it comes to some of these cases that we talk about here on the show. And uh, then, of course, later on in the program, we'll be bringing in content director Christopher Balzano to talk with us about haunted objects. Uh, it's going to be a strange dynamic. I think I might have you guys interview Chris and I. That might be the best way to do it. I think we can handle that. Because otherwise, it's like, so, Tim, how did you get involved in the project? Well, Tim. And then, then it turns into, you know, Sybil Radio. So that's that's the plan for this evening. Does that work for you guys? Yeah. 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 No. No, like you were just saying, uh, I've been thinking about that all day. There, there are a few films out there that were based on a true story that I knew, you know, a good chunk of the story. And mm -hmm. then you see the film, like, Haunting in Connecticut. They went about halfway into that film, and then all of a sudden just completely went Hollywood and brought up things that I never heard claimed in that case. It just, I couldn't understand why didn't they stick to the original case. Whether they're telling the truth or not, the story, as I heard it, was better than what they did with the film, in my opinion. And, and what's funny about that is, you know, every film 
out there that is based on reality undergoes these questions. I mean, uh, look at Moneyball came out last year, and, and people were saying, well, that wasn't really exactly how it happened. Well, but if it happened exactly how it happened, the general public wouldn't want to go out and see it. Uh, there has to be some degree of change to it, but then sometimes you get a completely bastardized story like we did with an American haunting. Oh, yeah, that's another great example. And they, they went so off the reservation on that one that it's not even recognizable. As, and, and it was a shame because it was a good cast. It was good sets, good costumes. It was yeah. it was well done, and then all of a sudden just, and that was it. And the source story was a pretty good story. Yeah. Because if you are interested in the paranormal, if you're going out to see this film for more than just a good scare on a Friday night with a date, then you're interested in the Bell Witch case yeah. because it combines a curse with a ghost with a witch. I mean, there's there's different aspects of the paranormal all coming together into one case, and it being the only case where a ghost was found responsible for the death of a person in a courtroom. You know, when you bring that in. Yeah, we had the Cornell case in Rhode Island, but that was a ghost pointing at um, their murderer. Right. And this be, is this yeah, is right. where the, the ghost right, exactly. was actually blamed right. for the murder. Right. And with with the Bell Witch case, you know, there's still room to remake that movie and, and do it the right way. Uh, there was a great movie that we talked about here on the show that we had the, the directors and the writers on here to talk about that. And that, that was that little close. independent film was actually very, very good. It stuck very close to the original true story. And why Hollywood couldn't do the same thing, I don't know. But this is what we run into. Too know. many three martini lunches. But when you think about it, though, I mean, do we really care about other stories enough as much as we do with these paranormal stories? I mean, we get really angry when the movies don't follow along with the true story. Well, I'm a bit of a World War II buff, and there's Mm -hmm. been a few films that made me go, oh, that's not how it happened. The real way was more exciting. Well, the other problem, too, that you run into, especially, you know, talking about World War II films and and any kind of film where it's genre-specific is – you have writers who may be writing the story that aren't familiar with the nuts and bolts of how right, it works. Right. And certain films, they will employ a team of researchers, and other films are like, well, you know, people generally aren't going to understand how this works, so we can kind of skip over it. Yeah. Uh, I was watching um, earlier today The Great White Hype, which is a great movie about the inside ins and outs of boxing, and it's a, it's a very funny movie, and... I'm watching it and I'm thinking in my head like, well, that's not how it works. You know, that's not how the sports writers would cover it. That's not how this would happen. And then I'm thinking, you know, most people don't realize that, though. So they can throw that out the window. And I think that we see a lot of that in paranormal movies, mm-hmm. the haunted house movies. You know, there's so much of what we would do in that situation that has to get thrown out the window because it's just not really that interesting. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, the, the debunking part is not as cool as sending in somebody who's there to confirm it. So we... We take it all with a grain of salt. I just want to be entertained in the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember coming on, and I'm still embarrassed about this to this day. I remember coming on these airwaves and promoting Paranormal Activities being, you know, the most frightening film of all time because that's what all the reviews were coming out saying. And I didn't realize, not that I didn't like the Paranormal Activity films, but I didn't realize how much of that was the marketing people and this new way of marketing working hand in hand. You know, they have this grassroots thing, yeah. demand it in your city, and they're ponying up to all the paranormal radio shows, and they're getting close to all the people in the field and be like, hey, put this on your Facebook wall and all this stuff. So they're making you feel like you're part of the process, and in doing that, you're willing to go overboard a little bit in your praise of the film. Yep. And 
that's that's I can tell you that's not the case with with Lionsgate here. I mean, they vetted this show pretty well to make sure that you know it was worth their time to come on and, and discuss this film because you know they know that they've got the makings of what could be a the classic next film, classic horror film. But right. It's been a while since we've had one. Yeah, I mean, I can't really tell you the last one that I saw that I would deem worthy of the the upper echelon of horror films. I think we'd have to go back to the Sixth Sense and the others, really. Yeah. Well, the uh, the Spanish film, The Orphanage, that was that great. was very well that written, was, yes. very very beautiful film. And and if you look at all those films together, you know, Devil's Backbone, yes, Pan's Labyrinth, and put them all together, uh, I mean, they just make probably the greatest trilogy of Agreed. films uh, out there. But sooner or later, it's going to happen. I mean, they already tried to remake The Orphanage mm-hmm. as a U.S. version. Yeah, sooner or later, they're going to try and adapt them for American audiences in a in a way that's not quite going to work. <sighs> What can we do? Just get more popcorn. That's the, the way that I see it, though, is as long as, you know, they don't expect us to keep going to the movie theaters and shelling out. Because you got to think when you're the people that make horror movies, you got to know. Maybe we can talk to the writers about this. I don't know how much they're into the, the business side of things, but you got to know that your box office gate is good. But. When you're a horror movie, the real money's going to be made in DVD sales and Blu-ray sales, home media, because that's where most people want to watch a horror movie. I think a lot of people have trouble going out to the theater and sitting there and watching a movie because they don't want to be scared in front of other people. <laughs> and then you get also what happens with the Saw films or the Paranormal Activity films where you go out, you watch it with a bunch of people, you have that crowd effect going on, and then when you go home, you're like, oh, it wasn't really that scary. I don't know why yeah. I acted that way in the theater, so kind of goes both ways i thought i was waiting to see if anybody made a joke there but so we will talk with the writers juliet snowden and styles white about the possession and if you want to check it out you can go to their website go to the website for the film the possession movie.com it's also facebook.com the possession movie if you want to join up on the facebook page there I'll just give you a quick synopsis of the film. It's based on a true story, as we said. It's a terrifying story of how one family must unite in order to survive the wrath of an unspeakable evil. Clyde, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and Stephanie Brennick, played by Kira Sedgwick, see little cause for alarm when their youngest daughter, M, becomes oddly obsessed with an antique wooden box she purchased at a yard sale. But as M's behavior becomes increasingly erratic, the couple fears the presence of a malevolent force in their midst, only to discover that the box is built to contain a dybbuk a dislocated spirit that inhabits and ultimately devours its human host. So, I mean, it, just reading the synopsis alone, it sounds like something that would interest me. So we will uh, we'll see where it goes when we discuss the process of turning a true story, and how true the story is, we don't even know, uh, into a film in just a few minutes. And then later on in the program, as I said, Chris Balzano will join us, and we'll talk about haunted objects. We want to hear your stories of haunted objects. If you've had a ghostly belonging if you've had a cursed item uh, if you feel that something you own has been a possessed possession then you can call in during the course of the night 508-996-0500-1877-996-1420 we are also broadcasting live on spooky tv at SpookySouthCoast.com, so you can go there and watch the live video feed and join in the chat room as well and i'm i haven't checked out the chat room yet so far moniz but i'm sure it's uh it's pretty kicking tonight yeah, we got people uh, talking about films and stuff like that. We had a lot of people when I posted up on Facebook 
and on uh, Twitter and everything about what tonight's show is going to be about. We had a lot of people interested in the topic. So hopefully all those people that are interested in the topic go see the film and also buy Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf by Tim Wise. I'm sorry, by Christopher Balzano and Tim Weisberg. I hate to put myself first there. And uh, you can buy that, of course, through the store at SpookySouthCoast.com. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz and special guest co-host tonight, Andrew Lake. And uh, we are talking about haunted objects all night long tonight. And uh, we are very excited to do so because we have joining us on the phone, Juliet Snowden and Styles White, the husband and wife team, the writers behind the new film, The Possession, coming out August 31st from Lionsgate Films. And you'll be able to see it here locally, of course, in all the theaters. I recommend going to Flagship and Wareham because that's where I will be to see it. So uh, let's bring them on the air. Good evening, Juliet and Styles. How are you? Hi. Hi, Hi. Sam. Thanks for having us. Oh, we are so excited to have you because it's one question that we've always had here on the show, and that's when it comes to horror movies that are based on a true story, You know how, how much based on a true story is it? And it seems with, uh, with The Possession, you've got a really good story to work with. Yeah, there is a great story to work with. Styles will kind of recap it for you. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, um, the cool thing about this project is, and, and you're right, whenever whenever we see the inspired by events or the based on a true story tag on a movie trailer, we're always curious as well. In the event of the possession, uh, the origins of it really go back to a uh, 2004 article that was in the L.A. Times that kind of drew attention to a... Um, an eBay listing where uh, a guy named uh, Kevin Manis uh, had purchased a uh, an antique wine cabinet at a estate sale and came to believe that since this uh, cabinet had come into his uh, possession, so to speak, uh, weird things had started to happen uh, to him and his family, and he basically went on eBay to uh, sell it and was and it was kind of one of these full disclosure uh, scenarios. He he outlined and detailed strange things that had happened to him. Uh, he had given it to his his mom as as a gift, and she she had a very severe stroke the next day. Um, I believe there were uh, insect man, uh, infestations. Um, he he was an antique dealer and had a shop in Oregon, and the room where the, the box where he had been keeping the, um, the antique cabinet, uh, lights were broken and, and sounds were heard coming from the room. So he basically went on eBay and said, um, I don't know if you're a believer in these kinds of things. I think something's wrong with this antique. I want to get rid of it. Uh, and it changed hands a couple times. So uh, it was really this 
Los Angeles Times article that drew attention to this uh, this really unusual story. That was kind of the jumping off point. So now, when you're you have that story, and when you read it, are you automatically thinking in your mind, uh, "This might make a good horror movie," or is it something that you know it comes up in a in a pitch meeting or something, and then you refer back to the story as as a way to put together your tale? Well, in this instance, um, Sam Raimi's company, uh, Ghost House Pictures, uh, had optioned the story. I believe they, you know, they got the rights for the L.A. Times article and then, you know, various, um, you know, real life rights of, of the people who had owned the box, um, so that they had the they had the underlying story. In other words, to make a you know a movie based this this real life antique that that came to be known as the Divic Box, which, um, you know, in fact, was, was kind of the working title as we were as we were working on the film. If you if you go on Google and uh, you, you know, do any Internet searches for the Divic Box, you find all kinds of uh, these the real life incidents behind, you know, what we used as the foundation for the movie. But it was really an instance where uh, we had worked with his company before on um, the movie Boogeyman, and they brought us in and, you know, said, we've got this this really interesting article about, you know, this real-life antique um, uh, that's really out there in the world, and very strange things have happened to the various people who've owned it. So what, you know, what do you guys think of what kind of movie you would want to, you know, turn it into and really use a lot of these real-life incidents that had happened as, as the foundation of it? And we really like the idea of... Uh, a recently divorced family where the kids are going back and forth between mom and dad on the weekend. And dad is, um, you know, he's got a big new empty house. He's looking to buy things to fill it up. And uh, just like in the, in the real story, they, uh, they see this box at a, at a yard sale and just think it's something interesting and bring it home. And it, uh, it begins to um, unravel a, a series of horrific events. Now, Juliet, when you're, Putting together this story, though, and you're doing research on the idea of a Dybbuk, I mean, this is something that goes back, uh, you know, hundreds and, and thousands of years. Yeah, absolutely. We we spent months researching, and um, Styles and I are married. One of the, the best ways that we did research was before we ever saw this article. We, um, we lived in the second largest Hasidic neighborhood, Hasidic Jewish neighborhood in America, um, for seven years, we had an apartment in Hancock Park. So we were right in the middle of a Hasidic community and um, got to got to view and, and see their customs and practices. So when the article came our way, um, we instantly, I don't think there was any in the article any connection to, to Hasidim. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that we really wanted to explore more, and it was really fascinating um, the more we looked into Hasidim, how um, how they are very it, it's a very mystical branch of Judaism, and and so we were right on track with with picking out um, that culture to explore in the movie. Well, and, and by the, yeah, I was just going to say that the reason we were going down that path is the um, you know for the listeners that don't know the the. The reason the box was dubbed this antique wine cabinet came to be known as the Divic box, and the Divic is the Jewish term for a, a dislocated spirit that cleaves 
clings to a, a human host. Um, inside the actual wine cabinet, there was a, 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 a little piece of stone tablet that had Hebrew writing on it, and on the back of the cabinet itself, there were also some Hebrew inscriptions. So uh, it was a it was kind of a Jewish uh, item to begin with, and to stay true to the the actual story for the movie, we really wanted uh, the elements of Judaism to be part of the story. So, you know, that's why we, we instantly thought um, the, the father, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who, who's the one ultimately that has to kind of go on an investigative journey to find, you know, find out what the true nature of this box is, we thought it would be fascinating for him to have to, as an outsider, enter into a, you know, very private uh, Hasidic community to find out what he could about the nature of this box and if there was anything he could do to stop this, this kind of series of horrific events that had begun to happen. Now, uh, I come from a Jewish heritage. My father is of Jewish, uh, is Jewish, and uh, both uh, religiously and culturally, you know, his family uh, observed a lot of the traditions growing up, and I know a little bit of the, the Hebrew inscriptions, and I'm pretty sure from the pictures I saw of the original Dybbuk box from eBay, those uh, Jewish inscriptions on the side of the box say Manischewitz. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, no, Good. <laughs> just, just a little pull on your leg there. but uh, No, seriously, though, this, this is a case, though, that in, in 2004 had a lot of interest, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people uh, here in this story. One thing that I do uh, want to know kind of, your thought process and the creative process of it is, sure. from what I understand, it Dybbuk is kind of a human spirit uh, who has returned for whatever reason and is is causing all this havoc. Whereas it seems like in the film, it's more of a, a demonic entity. Yeah, I can kind of speak to that. I, I think you know, there's certain elements of the uh, of the movie. Uh, it comes out August 31st. Uh, mark your calendars. You know, there's certain elements that we don't want to give away mm -hmm. that deal with the investigation and what starts to unravel in the story. But um, from what we found, yes, the, you know, there are there are older beliefs actually where um, the nature of Dybbuk is a little more broad than just a a particular person in the past who died and had unfinished business or certain sins that have, that have kept them as this as this wandering spirit. So we we really wanted to kind of break embrace a broader sense of of the mythology of evil spirits, so to speak. Um, and that is part of the the investigation that um, that the the father character um, Jeffrey D. Morgan begins to uh, you know to travel in this movie. And, and Juliet, you you had an interesting uh, character that helps uh, the father yeah. find um, out some of this information. Well, when we started when we started writing the script, um, we knew that you know, we were going to have a mentor character to help our non-Jewish characters um, venture into this this world and and help them. So when Styles and I were writing, we wanted to really break away from the the traditional mentor type character. You know, an older man or you know, somebody very wise in their 60s or 70s, and we knew we wanted to do a Hasidic character. And so we just had in our minds that it would be somebody like Mattis Yahoo. <laughs> you know, we 
we actually wrote that you know that he wore headphones and high top tennis shoes and was kind of, would, was beatboxing when our Jeffrey Dean Morgan character came up to to ask him for help. Um, that was in one of our first drafts. So when we when we started talking with the producers about our, our vision for the script, we referenced Mattis Yahoo a few times. So during the casting process, we got word that Kira Sedgwick had signed on and Jeffrey Dean Morgan had signed on and. They're like, well, what about our character Zadok, our our mentor character? And they were like, oh, we got we got Mattis Yahoo. And we were like, oh my gosh, that's insane. That because, like, sometimes as an artist, you um, number one, you never think your movie is gonna it's gonna get made, and when it does, it's just amazing. But sometimes you you fix in your mind what you want to happen, and and it happens sometimes, and it's just it blows your mind when it does. So yeah, it, it's part of the movie magic where you know yeah. just sometimes these ideas you have in your head they they manifest in in very real ways. It's it's part of the the reason that we love uh, we love being screenwriters and we love working on movies and especially uh, horror movies because for us. Um, there's just nothing like that collective, real. It's like a collective consciousness or something comes together. Yeah. And one really strange thing too that happened was Mattis read the script, and um, we didn't know any private details of Mattis Yahoo's life. Um, but we set our, our Zadok character living in Borough Park, which is in Brooklyn. It's the largest Hasidic community in America, and he had two sons and. Um, Mattis Yahoo read the script, and he lives in Borough Park and has two sons. And he just really felt like it was it was written for him, and he signed on to it. Well, I, I can imagine, you know, being a husband and wife duo that's that's become known for writing horror movies. I mean, does some of the neighbors kind of worry sometimes coming over <laughs> your house or letting their kids come over to visit or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, you think like you would think that maybe our house looks like you know the monstrous house we're at thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we're pretty. We're pretty normal people and pretty normal-looking people. Uh, We're normal. We have an eight-year-old yeah. son. Um, we, sometimes we forget what what our job is, and we're talking shop in front of our son at dinner, and, and my husband's saying, well, I really don't think she should die by, by getting that spike in her head. It just doesn't <laughs> – it's just not – I just don't think it's dramatic enough. And our son's just looking at us like, oh, oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I think for us, we're you know, as as husband and wife, and as as screenwriters who work in horror, and we also, you know, from that we we also uh, we were co-writers on the movie Knowing that came out in 2009 with Nicolas Cage. We're also, you know, we write supernatural thrillers. We just when we first started screenwriting and working together as writing partners, we just found ourselves continuing to gravitate towards stories that had those kinds of weird and scary elements that, that scared us and intrigued us as kids and from the types of TV shows and movies we would watch. And it, it seemed to be the types of stories we would get most excited about. And that, you know, it really ended up being where, uh, where our career has taken us. I, yeah, I, I once, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I once got a great quote. You, you talked about being normal people. Um, I'm, I'm a journalist, and I, I did a story on a local, like a theme park-type haunted house uh, here in the the south coast of Massachusetts, and and these people were, you know, talking about the the bloody heads that they have on display and the severed body parts and the guy with the chainsaw, and then they looked at me and they said, "But we don't even believe in this stuff. We voted for Bush." 
That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it just goes to show you, you know, they can even be the most normal people. But yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you mentioned, though, discussing things at the dinner table and, and kind of fleshing out some of these stories. Uh, what is the process for mm-hmm. you to create a horror movie? I mean, do you have to kind of scare each other or have you both become desensitized to, to the scares? No, no. We, always, always, always we start with um, character and we're we're very drama driven. Um, I think it's why we got somebody like Kira Sedgwick to sign on to this movie because it's really first and foremost it's about this family that that's going through a divorce and what happens to the kids that are stuck in the middle of it. And the Dybbuk box really represents it's it's a metaphor for what divorce does to families. They just it destroys them, and it especially destroys the children and. Um, that with, with the Dybbuk box, when we read the article, we're like, okay, it's creepy. Um, let's try to use as many elements as we can in that. But who can who can this story happen to, and how can we make make it mean something more than just a scary movie? So we're always we're always approaching our work dramatically. So we we sit and talk about characters for for days and days and days, and that was really the jumping off point for us with the story we were having. A lot of our friends going through divorces who had kids. Um, we were seeing what was happening to the children. And for me, I know I say I'm normal. I, I, I'm really not very normal, but I look very normal on the outside. Um, my writing for me is a, a, a cathartic experience where I can take something I'm really upset about or something I'm really scared about and, and put it into my writing, and it, and it helps me. Well, you, you mentioned um, before you know, working with Kira Cedric on this film. And the good thing about that, in addition to having a wonderful actress uh, in your film, is you're now, like, a lot closer to Kevin Bacon when you play Six Degrees of <laughs> Kevin Bacon. We're one degree. But uh, when you also, though, you mentioned that the film is produced by Sam Raimi, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. how much input he had in the creative process, and uh, did, did he ask you to write in a Bruce Campbell cameo? You know, no, we, no, this is no our... Bruce Campbell, but... We we worked a lot with Sam. Sam, we we've met with him qu- qu- quite often, and I, I have to say, of Styles and I have been professionally writing for about eleven years. We've been together eighteen years. Um, Sam is is one of the nicest people I've ever met, and there is nothing more enjoyable than pitching to Sam Raimi when he likes what you're pitching. I, luckily, I haven't pitched anything he didn't like. He sits and listens to you, and and. He savors every word. You can see his the wheels in his brain turning, visually seeing what you're talking about, and even like how he would shoot it. So it's it's really a pleasure, and and he he pushed us to be better, and um, that's another part of the collaborative um, thing that we love working on movies. Everybody kind of pushing each other to to, to keep making things better. And he probably also- kept you rolling in Maker's Mark too, right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry, Styles. Styles, you were saying? We, we, have not, we have not enjoyed a beverage with Mr. Mr. Ramey. Oh, maybe, maybe at, the, <laughs> at the premiere. Maybe at the premiere. Yeah. yeah. But, you yeah, know, Sam is definitely someone that, um, you know, getting into the horror game like we have, uh, people like Sam and Wes Craven are, are some of our, our idols in the genre. And I think what Sam brings to any project he does, whether he's directing or producing like he did on The Possession, is he brings a sense of taste. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a passion for the material and the stories. And it was really, uh, you know, Sam is, is someone who, uh, you know, brought the, uh, the director, Ole Bornadal, uh, 
uh, on this project. Possession had known him from other things and, and films that Ole was doing uh, back in in Europe, and that was just the greatest uh, choice of a director for this project. And and Sam really, you know, is great at finding the right fit of these people to write the script, this person to direct. Uh, you know, getting certain people to, to sign on in, in the acting roles and just being there as a, as a support system for the directors, the writers, whoever needs him, uh, and just, you know, really helps, uh, you know, keeps an eye on the big picture. Now, did you guys spend a lot of time on set? Because not to give too much away of the plot, but one of the, uh, one of the filming locations is allegedly haunted, right? Yeah, we were actually there. We, we went for a week. Um, we had pretty much finished writing, so it was more visiting the set. We took our eight-year-old son with us um, so, so that he now believes that we actually do have a job because <laughs> we, we work out of the house. <laughs> it's like, we're, don't you people go to an office? What do you do all day? Um, yeah, we, it was, Styles, was it a mental institute, a closed-down mental it, institute that, where yeah, they I were shooting? It was a former hospital, and then it had become maybe a, a, a mental institute, and, and then it was closed down, and they use it now for locations. And, I mean, you're, you're talking about your classic, uh, you know, probably built in the 20s brick building, long hallways that seemed maze-like, and, and you could wander off forever. Except and, you uh, don't want to. You really yeah, don't you, want to. You know, to be honest, between um, – between takes, when they would be setting up for the next shot, we would explore around a little bit. And uh, at one point, we we went into, I guess, what had been somebody, you know, a patient's room back in the day, and there were still uh, photographs that looked like they were from the early 70s that were taped to the wall and little, uh, little shrine and, and crucifixes and Virgin Marys, like they would pray there in, in the mornings and stuff. And that wasn't uh, art direction for the movie we were shooting, that was literally stuff that had been left there on the wall when they closed the place down. So there was a very tangible sense of, uh, you know, feeling like it, it could be a place that was haunted. Thank goodness the, they were only style, shooting during the, the, the day. The, the, crew, the crew was talking about having really bizarre experiences. People were, see, they were seeing people, and um, Oli said that some fluorescent lights that weren't even turned on, just all shattered um, right. on top of them. So they, they were very, very weirded out by that place. Well, that, that leads into my final question. We only have about three minutes here before we have to sure. uh, depart. But uh, I, I want to ask you about the, the next project that I read, at least on IMDb, that you're working on, and that's a remake of Poltergeist? We wrote uh, that we... Um, about four years ago. Um, that's... Yeah, that, that is something that's from the past. Our next project is um, we're writing and directing a movie for Universal and um, Michael Bay um, called Ouija. Nice. Or, we, or Ouija, well, whatever you want to call it. Both films sound like uh, they'd be perfect for you to come back and, and discuss those more with us uh, at we a later date. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having us. It was oh, fun. Thanks for joining us. It's great to it find is. out the process, and, and we're looking forward to seeing The Possession on August 31st. Awesome. Thank you so much. Right. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Night. All right. That was Julia Snowden and Styles White, the writers, the husband and wife writers of The Possession, which is coming out on 
August 31st at theaters near you. So uh, sorry, Moniz, I didn't mean to cut you off, but we were up against the break, and I, I, need, I wanted to ask him about that poltergeist thing. Not a problem. So, But we're going to have them back on, definitely, to talk about poltergeist. And I didn't even realize they were working on a Ouija project. Uh, we got an expert that we can hook them up with. Yeah, it sounds like that might be a good night for uh, Bob March to come down and hang out in the studio. You're in my head. And, uh, well, I don't want to be in there too long. <laughs> I'll start writing horror movies if I'm up there too long. Uh, but uh, we... We are very, uh, very honored to have them join us because it's not every day that you can talk to people about that creative process, you know, and, and we can sit here and be armchair quarterbacks about it and, and, and talk about, you know, wow, they really bastardized that true story to make this film. But now, you know, you get an understanding, too, of, uh, of what goes into it. And it, it just sounds like, you know, it's going to be a real creepy film. So looking forward to it. Also looking forward to coming back in the next hour with our guest and contact he's not really a guest anymore we can't call him a guest he's part of the spooky crew he works here even though he lives elsewhere but we'll have christopher balzano joining us to talk about our book haunted objects stories of ghosts on your shelf which you can purchase online now you can get it through spookysouthcoast.com and you can get it through anywhere else that you buy books amazon the bookstores they're in all the local bookstores apparently people are telling me they're buying it and saving it for me to sign for them and i'm like that's great but you know, you got to ship it to Chris to sign his half, too. So uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. During that time, if you want to go to SpookySouthCoast.com or LegendTrips.com, you can purchase tickets to our upcoming Haunted History Night on October 20th at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham, Massachusetts. I'm going to be there. Moni's going to be there. Andy's going to be there. So, I mean, it's like hanging out right now tonight, only at the Fearing Tavern. And uh, we'll, we'll have uh, all kinds of fun stuff. Now, you guys were saying that uh, we're going to have an opportunity for people to go into the old company store. Yep. Which is uh, part of that whole little area, and they're going to have a chance to actually go in there and check out another haunted location. Not as an investigation, but at least they can go in and wander around and, and buy some cool stuff. They can buy some cool stuff. Uh, the owner is going to have her chef cook up some desserts type of things for people to eat, and she's going to share her personal experiences in the place. Great place. But let me tell you, bring lots of money with you or a credit card because there's so much stuff in there that you're going to want to buy. All kinds of cool items. Even You can even get old-fashioned glass bottles of soda in there. So you want to definitely check that out. So as I said, we're coming up on the news. When we come back in hour number two, it'll be more discussion about haunted objects. Uh, there's no Dybbuk boxes in the studio, but we've got some pretty creepy stories that we can share with you as well. So stick around for that. And also feel free to call in with your stories, 508 996 We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. The supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSF presents Spooky South Ghosts with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costner. Welcome back, our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz and Andrew Lake of Greenville Paranormal Research is here with us. And also, you know, he's part of the Spooky Crew. We also have joining us another part of the Spooky Crew, our content director, our guiding light, our source for all things paranormal news, and just 
each and every one of our own personal best friend. Christopher Balzano is joining us. What's up, Chris? What's going on? Yeah, I don't man. think I can live up to that billing. Oh, my word. I think each time we have you on, I'm just going to get more and more extravagant in my praise for you. Makes up for all the shit that I say about you on the uh, off the air. Okay. <laughs> I just dropped an S-bomb on the radio. That's this... so funny because the first thing I was going to say is, seeing that we're on the flagship, I'm going to try to watch my language and you swear. That's, that's, that's a reference to an upcoming guest that we have. I uh, I have not heard a, I have not read a single one of them yet in the book. By the way, um, I've read a I, few. I, I've read a few other words, but not not the uh, not her favorite word that night. No, no, definitely not, and I don't think it is because I, I have my uh, my reservations over whether or not she wrote that. But well, no, they have a, a team of people that help clean that stuff up. <laughs> I think it was in collaboration, at least with uh, Joanne, if it's nothing else. Uh, but. Uh, but it, it's, it's actually kind of a good Everybody's, book. I, I was a little bit thrown off. Everybody's looking at us like, what the heck are you talking about? We're going to have uh, joining us. Do we have a date set yet? Um, no, we don't. We don't. No, we don't. We're, we're working it out right now. But it'll. we're, we're hoping in October. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a really good Halloween-type show to have. So. It's not the 20th because we're busy that night. Yeah, whatever. Maybe <laughs> I'll just well, while we're, I'll do it myself. <laughs> while we're on that subject, we should say, that uh, next Saturday night, Spooky South Coast will not be broadcasting here on WBSM because uh, we'll be at the Dead of Summer event at the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast. However, uh, Chris is going to attempt to run a show on Spooky TV, which, you know, if, uh, if our last episode of Spooky Crossroads is any indication, it should work out pretty well. Yeah, and, and, and hopefully it's Marla Brooks, and so it's a really good show to have because um, I'm going to get to some nuts and bolts of witchcraft, and Marla's the person to ask, and so, you know, we're hoping that you know, we're not going to be talking about curses or haunted objects or, you know, the case that shall not be named, that everything will go smoothly. Well, the other good part about that is if you have all kinds of technical issues and things with the Internet, Marla's used to that. <laughs> exactly. Maybe she can uh, do an on-the-fly blessing for us. Yeah, she knows. I mean, she hosts a, a talk show herself, so she knows what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that technical stuff, too. Yeah, that's too. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. I just I just meant like, you know, they're, they're used to having to go up against what technology can provide, and sometimes we have to do that as well. And boy, do we, do we work it out. <laughs> More or less. So uh, so I, I heard you wrote a book. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's funny, the more, I, the more I talk about it, um, because we were so close to it as we were writing it, and how uh, the way that it came to be, which is kind of this, um, this mixture of folklore and famous cases and real cases and then our personal experiences is very like, I hate to use this term, but very organically kind of came together. Um, and then the more that I've talked about it with people, the more I'm excited because they're getting excited because they dig that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very interested and I'm very excited by the, the reception that it's been getting and, and how more and more people are now coming forward and, and sharing stories, but then also trying to want to know, you know, well, why is this, is this kind of stuff out there? Why does it exist? You know, what is the, what is the basis of it? So talking about both kind of things rocks in my world, so I love it. And, of course, we had uh, Juliet Snowden and Siles White on in the first hour talking about the new film, The Possession, and I think that's only going to help increase the discussion more on haunted objects and cursed items and possessed possessions. Yeah, and, and you know, you know there's a, like you guys were discussing, the difference between you know, fact and reality, and it's based on a true story and those kinds of things. And, 
and sometimes it takes the, the dramatized, uh, sensational case uh, or example of the case, you know, a movie, a book, um, that might be a little bit from the truth to start the debate and to start the discussion. So, um, you know, I'm all about that. Well, uh, we ha- we have with us here in the studio, we have Matt Moniz and, and Andy Lake, as, as you can see on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. But uh, I'm thinking, uh, rather than interview ourselves, it might be best if we just have them kind of lead the discussion a little bit on, on haunted objects, stories of ghosts on your shelf. Hey, that rocks to me. Those are two of my favorite paranormal people in the world, so... And uh, while I'm sure neither one of them has read the book yet, that hasn't stopped the countless other radio hosts who have asked us about about it. Well, that's only because I haven't gotten a copy yet. Yeah, I don't have any to give you yet either. <laughs> and I just realized, oh, crap, I was supposed to get some before <laughs> dead of summer. So There are too many cameras at Barnes & Noble. So I couldn't get that's my own copy point. yet. So, uh, well, well, we, and we, I'm all about that because when they, they pay to replace it, we still get money for that, so... Steal them if you want. Buy them if you can. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that, uh, what was it, System of a Down, steal this album. <laughs> Abby Hoffman, steal this movie. You know, it's like Chris and Tim, steal this book. That's our new ad campaign, actually. We're reopening pair relations, and we're starting with the steal this book campaign. That's You say that in jest, but I, I guess it's not a joke. I guess we really are starting pair relations back up. Uh, we might be, and, and I can say that because my wife's not listening to this broadcast in full. <laughs> um, but there definitely seems to be a, a, a call out there for it. So so don't be surprised if Paralations gets its own little slide on the you know, Spooky South Coast front page banner. I, I just can't believe that uh, your soul has grown back enough after it got sucked out the first time that Paralations was open. Well, you know, I think if, I think if it's run the right way, and I think if we, we uh, have a, a tight mission statement, about what we want, that, that people are out there in the paranormal world that are not being heard. Um, and you and I have talked about this a lot, this whole kind of idea of, you know, the loudest, flashiest thing gets the, con- you know, gets the, gets the microphone and the content people sometimes don't. So this is, this is I'm looking to it as a, a way to bring content back to the forefront. All right. Well, none of our material will ever be represented by us because it has no content. <laughs> well, I was going to say we're still though in the mode of just shamelessly self-promoting ourselves. So yeah, I mean, I've become real. I've become a real expert in, in, in you know thinking that what I'm doing is really good for the past couple months. So glad somebody believes it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's turn things over to, to Matt and Andy, and, and we'll kind of let them lead the discussion, and I'll just sit here and act like I'm an in-studio guest. Hold on, ready. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Talk closer. Yeah, Clo- talk a closer, closer, closer. There you go. Closer to the microphone. Oh, on this side, right? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Here I am. We live. We live. Are we oh, live? Yeah. You we're guys live. are live. Now people people can see us on these cameras, right? Yes, they can. Oh man, the, uh, I wish I had known that. They can also hear you over the airwaves. Oh, okay. Well, we're very excited. This is our first time uh, in a real radio station. So. All righty. Now. What was your main inspiration for writing the book? Money. Okay. Mr. Balzano. Um, I was looking to spend more time with Tim. I'm sorry. That was the right <laughs> answer. I should have said, I was really looking for a project that Chris and I could work on together that wasn't Spooky South Coast. No. Um, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. You can. Oh, no. Go, go ahead, Tim. Well, they actually, they approached you first about it. Right. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, it was kind of a very long story coming, and it basically was, you know, 
they wanted, to, like most of my books, they wanted Jeff to do it, and he was like, no, nah, it's a little below me, but Balsano's perfect for it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it was just kind of a mad crunch for time for me when they originally offered it, and I'm like, I would love to bring um, another author in, and Tim and I had been looking to uh, work on something, and I was like, okay, here we go. And it, it's, it's really kind of weird because I think if it had gone a traditional route, it would have been a more traditional book. Um, but it seemed to have the, the – and, and publishing stories are really boring for people who are into ghosts, but this is kind of connected. Um, it just had this, like, stop and go, and then the person who approached us left the company. And there was all these weird things uh, that, that even were the start of it, which have kind of continued throughout this entire process. But I think that that – us putting it down, picking it back up, us putting it down, picking it back up, and then all of a sudden there's a mad rush um, really made us reevaluate, like I was saying at the beginning, how we were going to approach the book. Um, and then that kind of led to this, I think, a very unique book in that it celebrates those three different aspects, like famous cases, personal cases, and then uh, a lot of ones that are more into the realm of folklore. So it, while, it, while it's a really boring story, I think that it, it, it is kind of um, made for a much better book in the end. Well, we, we did decide, too, that uh, we wanted to put a lot of focus on stories people hadn't heard uh, because there's many books out there that have that are chock full of ghost stories and even though this is might be the first time they're being collected in a book of haunted object stories you know people have heard about robert the doll people have heard about annabelle the doll people have heard about james dean's car some of these things that we've we've covered here on the show and in other media in the past and and uh, we wanted to have some of those stories that people had never heard before and try to have them told from people who aren't in the paranormal field and i think we got a good mix kind of right down the middle of people who uh, don't know about this stuff and have these real-life experiences and, and people who uh, seek out the paranormal, and this just happened to be in the course of their work. Right. And, and even more than that, there was, there was a, um, a kind of uh, realization that haunted items um, are not always what you think they are, and that some of the, the, the most compelling stories we were able to find were ones that weren't doll stories or haunted toy stories or they weren't um, haunted cabinet stories, but they were really like odd things such as, you know, birth certificates and... The haunted cheese grater or something like that. <laughs> well, we have, a, we have a haunted soap dish. Yeah, butter dish. Um, butter dish. Well, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah, butter dish. So, I mean, it, it, it actually ended up being, you know, and I think that's kind of eerie because, you know, if, you, if all of a sudden anything in your house can have a ghost attached to it or, or, or become the subject of or the object of a, of a possession or a curse, that kind of really means everything in your house is, is, is open game. And that's kind of uh, unsettling. Hmm. So, right. so what, are you, what did you guys find was the most common? Uh, haunted items or possessed items or cursed items? Because there's a slight difference in those right. three. So what did you find the, the most? Possessed, cursed, or haunted items? I, I mean, I think it was far and away haunted items. And, and usually... Uh, haunted by the spirits that that people knew, uh, it was more uh, you know deceased family members who would uh, attach themselves to either something that they loved or something that they knew uh, that the person still living would know was a reflection of them. Uh, I think cur- cursed items were kind of the, the hardest thing to find uh, more than anything, right, Chris? Yeah, I mean because you know those were you know the the basic difference between at least as I see it, the basic difference between a haunted item and a cursed item. Um, would be a haunted item seems to have 
some kind of the the former living has, or in some cases still living, has some kind of connection to the object. And so the activity that's observed by people revolves around that object. Whereas a possessed, I mean, a cursed item seems to be it enters the house and then wacky things happen. Um, and so it's hard, oftentimes, to to nail down what is the cursed item because people take it's a long time to figure out that wait a minute. All this stuff is really starting to happen. Like, start connecting those dots as, as oftentimes as a, as a, not an individual, but as a family, starts to realize these kinds of things. And then it's like, as you go backwards, trying to figure out the, the genesis of this, like the origin, where did, where, where, when did things seem to go badly? And then all of a sudden you realize it was something very, um, you know, very, very uh, innocent at, at the beginning. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, this has started this whole series of events. Sort of so like the Hope until, Diamond? So, well, yes, which is a great example of, of, of a cursed object. Um, and, it, and it's one of those things where, you know, obviously there's a hope diamond. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty big thing to, to do it as opposed to, you know, a doll that's in your house or a, um, um, you know, a, say, for example, a cardboard piece of, you know, a piece of cardboard with, you know, the Our Father written in blood. So those are things you normally wouldn't think of as being... Uh, you know, bringing evil things into your house. Well, and that's the the other problem too with with cursed items is a lot of times when people are placing a curse, they place it on the person uh, more often than on an item. So while people may feel like uh, an item might have been the you know beginnings of this curse, in, in reality, it could just be on them. So even when they get rid of that item, you know, they're still cursed. So uh, it, it's one of those tricky things where it's you can't really be sure uh, unless you know for a fact that it was placed directly on the item. And I know one of the stories that I shared, and it was something that at least we knew that it was a, a direct curse placed on an item. Uh, so those were the kind of stories we were we were looking for. Yeah. Yeah, and with the when you're getting into kind of the uh, black arts, which would kind of be needed to have a curse, even if it's you know not a necessarily a practitioner, but someone who's intent uh, gets into those same kind of energies. You know, the, the the human person, and, and Tim and I have never really discussed this, so it would be interesting to have his thoughts on this, but the, the person themselves is a difficult object to attack. Um, you know, whether we have personal strength or we have auras, if you believe in that kind of thing, you know, there are kind of like ingrained uh, defenses that people have. Um, but if you can put that curse on an object and slide that object into the person's life so it can start to kind of infect the environment, mm -hmm. it seems to be a much more powerful thing. It's almost like a Trojan horse for the curse. Exactly. And, and, and usually it's not something that's necessarily thought of as pleasant. It can be very mundane and very normal, and then, and then you know, uh, um, bad things start to happen. And breaking down those kind of, uh, that, that strength and breaking down those, that that people kind of just have naturally. Right. Now, um, I love turning the tables on them here. It just, I just got to ask you guys, if you guys were ever to personally were to investigate a case of a haunted or possessed item, would you um, recommend the item be destroyed or would you pull a John Zaffis and tell the people you should take this valuable antique out of the house and put it somewhere safe? I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. That's, that's my point of view. I'll... I don't want to have it in the house because I have a family, but I'll, I have a nice shed I can keep it in <laughs> for further study. Uh, I'm, a firm, I'm a firm believer that, that destroying the object somehow releases things. 
Um, and, you know, I, I used to... So you want to destroy the cage that the tiger's in? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's, and I'm not really sure if I can, if I can verbalize why scientifically, um, although I, I guess I could do that, but I, I, in terms of at least in, in folklore and, and, and other kinds of approaches to it, um, I used to, um, my dorm used to be Emerson College, and, and supposedly the people who created it put spells on physical parts of the building. Um, and I remember just thinking, especially when I heard that it was being gutted out to be turned into condos, um, you know, what, what kind of stuff are they releasing? And I, and I haven't heard any stories about it, but I remember that being a very firm um, idea in my head and being somewhat frightened by the idea of, like, well, wait a minute, they're gutting this place out. What if they're releasing those spirits? Um, and, 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 and those would be much more of, like, thought forms and, and things like that rather than, you know, spirits of people who are living. But I remember being very frightened by that. So I, I really say I'm really of the, um, the church of give it to Tim because, you know, don't destroy it because only bad things can happen if you do. But I, I will say if the item does have value, uh, maybe the best thing to do is to sell it. Just sell it because if you know that it has value, it's worth something, uh, sell it, pass it on to somebody else. It's up to you if you want to give them kind of that disclaimer uh, with it. But uh, there is a lot of speculation that uh, certain people in the paranormal field who collect haunted items tend to only gravitate toward taking the ones home with them that have value, (laughs) uh, thereby increasing the net worth of their private collection. Uh, So just to avoid that whole circumstance you want to get rid of it why not you get the money i mean some people feel like if you profit off of it then you're just as cursed as if you had the object uh, in your own possession but take that chance it's better to take that and chance with 50 bucks in your pocket than with a haunted object in your closet so and you- i think a lot of the, the cases that we cover in the book that are of haunted items um most of them had some kind of origin to them and some kind of backstory where um, like a Rubik's Cube, it, it had to be solved. And for many of them, um, solving that mystery behind it seemed to diffuse the haunting itself. And so not many people were giving up their haunted items because they were um, they kind of found a balance with them, um, and they found some kind of harmony with it, as opposed to, you know, like the possessed items or the cursed items that we had talked about before. And, and two... One of, the, one of the other things about these haunted items that we write about is a lot of them are somebody that the person knew or was very close to or a family member, so they wouldn't want to get rid of that item. Uh, they almost want to keep that spirit around. Some of them were coming to them in times of distress. Uh, so to think that if you ever had another bad day again, you know, great-grandpa could come back and, and calm your fears one more time, then you'd want to hold on to the item. Yeah, I can see that. Sure. And I think the one story we have where the person destroyed the item um, worked out well. The haunting completely stopped. So if that was a case where it was a it was a, a genuine scary haunting. Um, it was not someone they knew. It was someone who was trying to get them to. It was basically you know we said cabinets earlier. It was a metal cabinet, but inside the metal cabinet was a copy of the person who had died's birth certificate, and. Um, the woman who had bought the cabinet at a yard sale had a lot of really bad experiences, um, and she tried. She did her best, you know, uh, private detective to try to figure out a way to get this birth certificate back into the hands of the family. When it failed, 
the, the activity that was going on in her house was just way too intense. And so her and her husband ended up burning it. Um, and the haunting stopped for her. So it, it seemed like, at, in that case at least, that the, the power was actually coming from, uh, in some way, the, the, the birth certificate itself. And so when it was destroyed, it, it no longer it was no longer kind of a gateway for the spirit to come and visit them. Well, I will say, if anybody has any stories that they want to share, I'm going to jump in and do host job for a second. If anybody has any stories that they want to share of, a, of an item that they have that they believe had been cursed, possessed, or haunted, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And uh, that's the, the best way to get us because you can share it with everybody here. But you can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com or jump in the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com and uh, and hopefully... I know Dave's in the chat room. Maybe we can get him to call in and talk a little bit about the dress at Stones. And uh, I don't know if John Brightman is in the chat room, but he could share the story of uh, of the cursed item that uh, he shared with us for the book. And, of course, we have the, the Haitian masks that uh, Jeanette Osborne told us about. I mean, there's there's so many stories that when you're reading this book, you know, these stories are connected to Spooky South Coast, too, because these people trusted us enough to, to share their own personal experiences and share these stories with us. Uh, including Claire the doll, which we had here in the studio, right where you're sitting, Andy, and uh, <laughs> and uh, she was cool to hang out with us uh, for well, hang out with me for for a couple of weeks. And when you can actually take the item and hold it in your hands and and apply that to the story, you know, here I am holding this doll that caused a younger Jill so much fear and, and grief when she was younger, and. You're looking at it. You just don't understand how something like this can have that kind of power. But it made me think that even if it wasn't for the fact that it was haunted, even if, and I don't think it's the case, but if it was all in Jill's mind, this haunting, just to look at that object and and to realize the power that it can have over somebody when it's something that you would never even think about. And then you start thinking back to your own childhood growing up and the things that scared you. And you start to wonder if they had that power. Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black, the little doll in that. See? That absolutely scared the fertilizer out of me. That was uh, was hilarious. I couldn't, I I didn't even want my G.I. Joes in my bedroom with me after that movie. Chris is familiar with the film, but he got stumped on another show being asked about that. Oh. Meanwhile, I got a weird science question. So. <laughs> Way too easy for it. you know. I, it, the other, the other part of that is that in in talking with you know not only just you know doing promotions, but in talking with people who have read the book and stuff like that, they they want to talk about you know some of those more sensational um, stories, but there are also some really good, quick little tidbitty ones um, that are that are in there that um, you know we're not probably giving as much press because they're you know they're not the kind of foundations of the book, but it's you know, they're the little quick stories, because so much of uh, the paranormal is the one-time event um, mm-hmm. or is the the thing that, that you don't realize until after it's over that, wait a minute, that wasn't supposed to happen. Um, and so there's really there's really kind of a uh, – and those act as almost kind of like pit stops in the book. You know, we're dealing with these very heavy cases, a lot of which are, are very scary and frightening, and then you'll get this other one that's just really small. Um, and quick, and you're like left shaking your head about it. So, so it's it's really it's really interesting to kind of do those little snapshots too. Now, both of you guys have been friends for years, and you're both written books on your own. How hard? Well, Tim wrote a book. 
<laughs> okay. And Chris wrote a book and just kept recycling it under different titles. Okay. Oh, I can't. I can't even make that joke with you because all your work is so diverse from one to the other. All right. I don't really write them, but go ahead, Matthew. My my question being, what was the hardest part of writing with each other, and what were the easiest parts? In other words, who was the millstone in the project? You know, it. We we talk about this quite a bit, but we're amazed at how smoothly it worked out. I mean, we had conversations going into this where we were really concerned about, you know, okay, well, if you write this and then I'll take it and I, and I'll give it a once over and you know whose voice should we use, what what tone should we take? We we had a lot of uh, discussion about that. I mean, I remember, I don't know how you felt about it, Chris, but after we had the the biggest phone conversation about that uh, about all that. I kind of hung up the phone and started thinking to myself, gee, you know, maybe this is not going to work out this way. You know, maybe we're we're too um, set in our styles as writers to to be able to give some of that up to collaborate. But that's not how it worked out at all. No, and and I think I was I was probably even more um, hesitant than you were because I'm a jerk. Um, and when I'm writing, I'm very particular and very uh, peculiar sometimes in the way that I want things to go mm-hmm. and. And it's it's and, and things stump me oftentimes, and I can't. I have to stop because I'm like I'm not getting this right. And so I really take a lot of pride in my craft, which if you've read some of the books, you might say pride in my crap, but still. <laughs> um, and and it was like oh, another person and someone who's my friend, and I've got to like not get angry with them when they and, and no, this isn't what this isn't what I want. And my name's first, so I'm the best. Yeah, we did. No, we, and it was a, and, we, it ended up not happening. We we did have to set a, a ground rule from the beginning of nothing personal. Uh, right. I mean, that's something that we went into it saying like nothing, no matter what happens, you know, it's you can't take it personally. But it didn't work out like that. I mean, the first chapter that I sent over to him that I had finished up, and and he had sent me some stuff that he had finished up, and we're reading it. We're like, this is you wrote it exactly the way that I was writing my, and it just it worked. So. So to, the first chapter you sent over was basically a rewriting of something of a story that I wrote in Ghost of the Bridgewater Triangle, but still. Yeah, but had I actually read that, you could have accused me of plagiarism. But, <laughs> you, next but time, I just told him from Edward Lodi, so it was, it was perfectly fine. Let me just say, I, I try to keep the spines in your book as pristine as possible for their collective <laughs> you know, value. And, and I think part of that had to do with the subject matter. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you know necessarily there was a psychic bond. I, I think a lot of it, going into it, seeing ourselves as not investigators um, and as part, re, you know, part interviewer, reporter, searching for the truth, but more over storytellers. And so I think that when, when we were kind of approaching it from that angle, you know, those other good parts of us kind of filtered in the way they should with any you know, writer who's writing about something that they love. Um, I, I think that that a lot of it came from we were both kind of determined to tell the people who had these experiences stories, even if those were us, even if those were our stories. Um, and so I think that that had a lot to do with the, the smoothing over of it. And and you know I we've had a lot of debates and we've had a lot of discussions with people and even kind of hints at the you know what we were talking about tonight whether you know things uh, when you say based on a true story you know I. I, I think that this book is based on a true story, and oftentimes it's our angle on it, or it's our heart, it's our finding the heart of the haunting, as I've often said. But I think that you know it, it's impossible to tell the exact story because when people tell you the story, 
it automatically takes a narrative. It automatically has a plot to it because they're looking at it backwards. Um, and I think that when we allowed that to happen, that's part of the reason why just kind of naturally the stories came together and we were able to work together. That that was the hardest part for me, was being able to to separate the journalist and which is funny because like in my job I don't really consider myself a journalist. I'm like I'm not really a journalist. I'm not one of these guys that's going to go up there you know after your, as your house is burning down and stick a microphone in your face and ask questions about it. But I was I had to separate the journalist side of me and I had to separate the investigator side of me. And not try to prove or disprove these stories and just tell the story. And I, at first I was very nervous about that because I didn't – I was like, okay. If you went I, from a chronicler I – mean, from a journalist to a chronicler. Right. And when you're doing that, you're worried, get worried about giving up some of your own credibility in, in sharing some of these stories because some of them are very fantastical. So you're like, if, if I tell this story then, are people going to look at me differently? Because the way, And then once we got kind of over that hump, like it became – immensely enjoyable to be able to tell these stories and to, to be able to, you know, turn a phrase in, in regard to the way that you're sharing this person's experiences. You know, they're telling you what happened and you're trying to put some sort of prose to it. And then, you know, even though you're not really supposed to give somebody a, a view of the story before it's published and say, what do you think? But to say kind of, does this accurately reflect the way that you felt at the time and to have them say yes you know, it's something new to do as a, as a writer to, to learn how to convey other people's emotions instead of your own. Okay, so you went from basically uh, clinical to more of a lyrical type of mm -hmm. writing where you were more free to augment with your own feelings rather than just take down the basic facts which you would normally do in your uh, journalistic phase. Uh, what you see as a result of that is um, even though we're, we're – you know, displaying for you each individual tree, we never do lose sight of the forest throughout the course of the book. And I, I think part of what happens is that we're able to convey, you know, when someone doesn't get the story right or there's a part of it that doesn't make sense or line up, uh, so much of that has to do not with them intentionally telling you a lie, but it has to do with their own kind of sense of not understanding what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that we unintentionally set out to do, but what we did do, is we captured that confusion and kind of celebrated that confusion because so many of the experiences were, at least on my end, were brought to me in terms of, hey, what the heck is going on here? I don't get it. Or this is something that happened in my life, and it was very weird. Let me tell you about it. And it was, it was you know, their way of trying to understand what had happened. And so that, you know, you can't, when you're, when you're, telling that story, um, you're not confronting them about, you know, the mistakes or the inconsistencies, but you're rather kind of presenting them as this person didn't understand this, this, you know, or, or you know, they, um, they were confused or according to, you know, or when they thought back on it later, and you're presenting it with those kind of built-in, um, built-in and kind of like, you know, maybe this isn't true, this is from their, you know, perception. So when, you, so when you celebrate that as part of the confusion of what was going on to them, um, I think it makes for, for um, a really interesting um, take on the paranormal. So it's not that straightforward. We went to a haunted house and here's what happened, but here's what was going on in my life. I didn't get it. It was a Tuesday. Well, wait a minute. You just said it was the weekend. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. No, that was another part of it that happened. And, and, and you're kind of able to say, oftentimes, wow, this makes it in some ways more believable because not rehearsed it's more of kind of like they're venting and from that vent comes the story 
Okay. Now, what did you use as a selection process for what items you included and which ones you didn't? In other words, did you basically censor yourself saying, we're not going to take any objects that deal with this or that? Do you understand the question? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually, you know, I've been dying for someone to ask me that question, really, and no one has. Well, um, they have now. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I had in my mind, um, going into it, what I thought a, a haunted item story should be, a haunted object story should be. Um, and I was very particular that I didn't want, um, I didn't want 27 people to tell me their Robert the Doll experiences, for example, and think that it was going to be a chapter. Um, I also didn't want one that necessarily, I didn't want too many stories that revolved around famous places. You know, that we, we have a few things that, you know, touch upon Stone Tavern or, or, or Lizzie Borden, but we didn't want, I didn't personally want it to be too heavy with, with um, landmark cases. Um, and I also didn't want it, originally I didn't want it to, to be something, I wanted it to be more personal, but I didn't want it to be something where, you know, something very weird happened when I touched Pope's feet, <laughs> his shoes. Um, and what I found is that, those stories as people were telling them to me that, that touched upon those things I originally pushed out um, were just as interesting because they were personal. Um, and so it was kind of this, you know, when we talked about the case that shall not be uh, mentioned, um, you know, that was something that I, I had no desire whatsoever to touch. And yet because the, the personal side of it, especially its connection to other things we've been working on, then ultimately a personal connection to me, I, um, it was like, wow, well, this, this has to be included. This is like three or four different haunted items have fallen to the path of this case. Um, and so, and, and, I, and, and I also wanted the haunted items to be um, the focus uh, of whatever was, that was going on. But once again, I found that, you know, oftentimes it's when we remove these things from places that are notoriously haunted or, you know, even just knowingly haunted by a small group of people that bad things happen. So, so the, the best answer to that is, yes, I was totally biased going in, and then the stories themselves completely changed my focus. Okay. All right. Now, which items um, in the whole book did you find the most compelling? Which had, in your, your opinion, the most compelling? I'll start with you, Chris. Wow. Um uh, taking my personal experiences aside, um, I think one of the, although I guess it is a personal experience, but, but one of the more interesting stories that really kind of drew me uh, in as I was telling it, and as it was kind of unfolding as I'm writing it, was a case that involved your good friend, um, Nancy Panetta, in Florida, huh. um, who had gone... Once again, this kind of breaks the rules that I initially had. She had gone to a paranormal location, and in that location, um, a book called The Lady of the Lake um, kept finding its way into the investigation. She was investigating this haunted house. It was originally um, on her nightstand, and then as she was investigating over the course of the night, it kept appearing in weird places. Um, they would completely switch rooms, and the book would appear. Um, and then it kind of uh, followed her home. Somehow it got into her bag. And when she got home, she realized that she had the book. Um, so it was this really kind of, you know, destiny, which is supposed to have this book. And what really kind of draws me in, which I think is, is kind of the next level of the paranormal, is, you know, I own that same exact, exact book. And it's not like it's 
you know, um, it's not like it's the Hunger Games. It's, you know, a weird, obscure book that we both have the same edition, which was published over 120 years ago. Um, mine's completely normal. Hers is not. Um, her and I have had these really odd chance encounters and all these different ways we've kind of come in and out of each other's life over the past couple of years. And this book was like this other link. And the more we talked about the book, the more we realized there were these other paranormal links between us. And so that case was very interesting for me because it was evolving as I was writing it, um, but also because it, it, it hinted at all of these other elements, this synchronicity, this kind of, um, you know, are the spirits somehow connecting people uh, aspect to it, which I touch upon in the book, but you don't want to get too heavy because you don't want it to be off of the, the subject. I think it's pretty uh, interesting how you can both have the same book, yet neither one of you can have our banner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's just, well, for for me, the, the most profound story, uh, I mean, each story as you're writing it, it kind of has like a little bit of a wow factor to it, uh, especially when, you know, you start to, to scratch your head at what could be the cause behind some of these. I thought, you know, for example, Claire the Doll was a really intriguing story from the fact that you don't know exactly what the nature of the haunting is of that and how it all began. But I think Jeanette's story that she shared with us about the Haitian masks, and just in terms of the uh, amount of malevolence associated with those objects, uh, she bought these Haitian masks to put into her house. She had her dream house, and she always wanted to have, you know, actual legitimate Haitian masks hang on her wall, so she bought these from Port-au-Prince and had them shipped to her house. And so many bad things happened from the first moment, from the time her husband went to pick them up at the post office and his brakes went out on his car. Uh, and then, uh, you know, glasses would shatter as people were in the same room as the masks. The dog wouldn't walk by them. So many creepy things about them. And then all of a sudden, holes started appearing mysteriously throughout her entire property. Like, really, really deep holes that, you know, nobody could have dug them without them catching them out there doing it. Were there, like, over a thousand of them, like, in Blanca Lancashire? <laughs> no, not that many. Uh, but there were still enough for, to be concerned. Uh, and it, was, it was, wasn't just a day in the life. It was every day they were going out there and finding these things. And, and she realized that her family was in serious danger by these masks. Uh, and that's pretty interesting in and of itself. But then how she got rid of them is even more intriguing because she contacted John Zaffis and he had said, you know, if you can't get rid of whatever's haunting them, send them to me. And so she actually went through the process of having them sent to him and they disappeared from the post office. They wow. dropped them off at the post office and they never made it to John Zaffis. They never made it to John Zaffis. <laughs> they, <were laughs> they would have been nice in my museum, buddy. Yeah, right above the haunted couch. <laughs> wow. Ah, uh, well then, and and that's one of the things that people uh, were asking us while we were in the process of writing this. Oh well, you're, you're going to go down to John Zaffis's house and, and interview him, right? And that's something that we had talked about originally. Is I was going to drive down to Zaffis's house and talk to him and spend the day with him and look around at some of the items, but uh, two things started to come clear as we were writing this book. One. John Zaffis is working on his own book about his collection. Right. So, therefore, he wasn't going to talk to us about it. But, and two, uh, w and I would say that he wouldn't talk to us, but we decided not to ask. Right. Because we didn't want to put him in an awkward position of having to say no. And, and two, it really wasn't about that. It wasn't about the guy who has all these objects sharing the stories of how he collected them. 
It was about the people who experienced them sharing with us what they from went all through. All walks of life and society, and yeah. And and the story. I mean, I put out the call on social media for people to get in touch with me, and to h- have people that I went to high school with writing back and telling people who never believed in this stuff. You know, I don't believe in that kind of stuff, but I had an experience with an object, and to have them sharing with me, you know, what happened to them, I started to realize that yeah, you know, there's. As much as we say the paranormal is everywhere, you know, it seems like almost every person encounters that one object that isn't quite right in their life. Did you ever find anybody who had an object that wasn't a problem if they just ignored it and left it alone? Or did objects seem to want attention even if you did leave them alone? Well, I mean, Chris, you you chronicled a few stories where as as much as they tried to leave them alone, they couldn't. Right, And and I think that for the, for the most part, the the same kind of compelled compulsion um, for whatever was with it to begin with, um, whatever kind of um, drove, whether it was an earthly spirit, whether it was you know a person who was actually uh, once alive, or whether it was something darker or something you know not as clear. Uh, I think this, that same thing kind of intensified most times when the people chose to ignore it. So a lot of the, the haunted items, especially that I covered, had definitely an escalation to the story. Um, and so it was one of those situations where um, people were kind of being like, no, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. Um, or there was that confusion I was talking about, and they were trying to you know, pass off because to believe that an item, because so many of them were not people who were into ghosts, so were not people who um, thought this stuff even existed. So... To admit that this thing was 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 kind of happening to them, they kept pushing it off, kept pushing it off, and and uh, and once again, that birth certificate story is a great example of, you know, the, the spirit went from kind of gently tapping them on the shoulder to uh, literally shaking them awake at night and smacking them and and and, and yelling at them to, to to do something about it. Well, Chris, one of the things that uh, you were discussing with me uh, off the air earlier was the fact that we wrote in the book, of course, about the proliferation of haunted items on eBay over the last few right. years and how you can kind of follow the I've trends. I've bought and given them as gifts to people over the years, yeah. And you paid a premium for yeah. the, the name, for having that description as haunted. But uh, you can kind of follow what the trends are in the paranormal by what's on eBay. You know, when we started right. doing this book, it's a ghost, and then at some point it became a demon, and now the popular thing is that it's a djinn. Yeah. You know, so you can follow along with those. But uh, you actually were telling me about a, a story that came out this week uh, about eBay uh, cracking down, not on haunted items necessarily, but on, on certain paranormal services. Well, I think it's, a, it, you know, potentially as a, as a um, slippery slope because, you know, that's the, in terms of what they do, they've got to watch out for frauds and they've got to watch out for legality and, and for people, things coming back on them. But, but this... Um, this week, at least, they came out, and they will no longer allow um, what they call, and I'm quoting here, um, prohibited items include advice about the paranormal, spells, curses, hexing, uh, big objects that uh, allow you to cast spells or curses or hexing, anything that helps you conjure or uh, control magic, um, blessing services and prayers, which kind of gets more into the religious side of things. I was going to say, all those things are religious in nature anyway, so they wouldn't be able to sell rosary beads then under well, that Well, right, type and, of... I, and I think that's what kind of it opens up uh, up to because, you know, these are many things that fall under their metaphysical category. 
Um, but one could say, you know, that those little guardian angels that you're supposed to give people when they go in for surgery and things like that, you know, those are blessings in and of themselves. Can those no longer be sold? And, and I think that um, they, they seem to be, the focus seems to be things that um, you give to someone that can then be used to do these things um, as opposed to haunted items. But, you know, it, it's not that far down the slope to say that, you know, well, well you can no longer sell all those all those gin items, or you can no longer sell the little little box that you trap the ghost in. So it's it's interesting that, that eBay is making that um, that distinction. So so bonded bonded items are still okay? Bonded items as of right now are still okay. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they even come out and they say, you know, uh, crystal healing skulls, finger rings, enchanted by genes, by genies. Uh, those things are still allowed, and and not to mention all of the paranormal equipment that they that they uh, allow to be sold. Well, the paranormal equipment, I can't imagine they could. I mean, a good portion of it is not specifically for the paranormal field anyway. It's only the last few years we've seen devices that are created just for paranormal use. So, I mean, it'd be kind of hard to not allow people to sell a tri-field EMF meter because it has other applications. Well, sure. You know, and I, and I think that, that you know, if you get into other things, such as dousing rods, if you're really into finding water. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, anything. You can get those $450 ones that's on the, linked up to the story? Right, right. Uh, they, you know, and, 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 of course, you know, what your previous guests were talking about, Ouija boards. Those are all things that, you know, are right now safe but may not be safe down the road. Okay, so how about stuff like um, accumulators and stuff, if you go back to, like, Wilhelm Reich stuff or, or cloud busters? You know, it uh, doesn't really fall under a religious thing, but it's still a... Um, kind of faith-based, kind of yeah, like... Yeah. yeah. In a certain sense, you got to believe in what Reich had talked about, um, orgone, orgone energy and stuff like that. It's it is not anything dealing with a quote unquote deity or a ba- uh, faith that would normally be practiced by other people, but it's a it's a faith in that this particular energy or whatever field exists. I think people at eBay would be confused. To see yeah, they don't. Yeah, but, yeah, whatever. Let him sell it because I don't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> I don't want him to go down that slippery slope, though, because I, I don't want him to do anything that ruins my plan of eventually someday when I have money, you know, when I get the Coast to Coast gig or something, and I actually have some extra scratch of uh, starting my collection of, of uh, items with religious figures appearing randomly in them, you know, like the moldy grilled cheese that looks like Jesus or the burnt toast that looks like Mary. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to have that collection someday, and I, I'm counting on eBay to provide it for me. Well, I'm interested as to how eBay is making that you know, I'm saying like, well, this item is doing what we don't want it to do, but this item is not. Um, and how easily it is to change maybe a few keywords in what you're selling to completely make it. Oh no, it's allowable now. You know, it's it's not a. I'm not telling them how to do a curse. I'm telling them how to find inner peace by doing bad things to others. That's a hmm. healing thing. So I'm allowed to do that. We could ask them these questions, but uh, you know, eBay didn't respond any to any of our requests for interviews for the book haunted objects. So. Uh, no, they did not. People on eBay did, um, and then he backed down as if they were hiding something. But um, but but you know, eBay themselves did not respond. Right. It was it was really uh, it was really kind of a tough process uh, to get some of the the larger entities to comment on this. 
Uh, you know, it ended up when you when you, you took out the Zappos aspect of it. Like we didn't spend too much time, and the eBay stuff. If you originally looked at our proposal, we had it was so much more heavy with that kind of thing. Um, and then as the book got closer to towards, you know, being a do, the the publishers seemed to care less about that, which was good for us because we did want to focus more on the people as opposed to the institution. And uh, we're getting some comments in the chat room, and I, I just noticed that. Uh, that low battery Dave said he he will smack uh, anyone who thinks the scanning radio will talk to spirits, and uh, I, I would agree with you, Dave. Except that I've had some pretty strange things happen with those things. Yeah, yeah. So we'll 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 convince him. We'll convince yeah. him that it's at least possible. No, I I, I you know kind of scoff the, uh, the the cell phone to the dead, but I've had a few moments where it's like, whoa, that was a little too strange. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's a doesn't mean that it's a spirit necessarily. It could just be something else messing with us. Yeah, that's true. So uh, now, Chris, I I haven't heard uh, anything from from the actually I've heard nothing from the publisher over the last uh, few weeks, <laughs> but uh, surprisingly silent publisher. And I noticed that we're not in any of the catalogs. But anyway, we are the bastard children of uh, of the publisher, I guess. But uh, I mean, would you have interest in a sequel if if the possibility came up? Um, <laughs> body bags too. <laughs> I'm not, I'm ABC not really News Hello. covers the world. WBSM covers your neighborhood. AM fourteen twenty. WBSM. Glad we got that out I, of the way. I think that about says it all, right there. Right. I mean, uh, here's here's uh, here's what's going to happen though is we're going to have a lot of these stories flooding into us once the book uh, starts to become more popular and. You know, people are going to be want to sharing their stories with us, but I, I think it would lose the charm that we've had with the first one. You know, it would yeah, lose, lose that uh, that freshness. I, I and I start out every book being like, I'm I want a question for me answered, or I want to explore a question. Mm-hmm. And I had people approach me, and you know, Schiffer, for example, and other publishers wanting to do sequels to Dark Wood, wanting to do sequels to. Um, Ghost of Bridgewater Triangle, and I could write those books because I've gotten enough information from it, um, and the, and the attention to those areas is, is so much more intense now than it was then. But I'm kind of like, no, that that's not where I am right now. Uh, and so I know that sounds very artsy fatsy to say that, but I'm not really sure. I'm I'm really enjoying talking about the haunted objects and a lot of the ideas behind them, but I'm not really sure I'm, I, I would want to go back there again and, and kind of. You know, okay, now haunted items too, haunted objects. You know what though? Just send us your stories anyway, and we'll we'll decide what to do with them. We can always and, make and some so sort of online repository. So much, so much. Yeah, and I think that'd be really cool, and we could add that to kind of the the, the ghosts on your shelf part of of my site. That you know, it's, it's it's meant to promote the book, but also I would love for it to be a and then you know do cross stuff with Spooky South Coast on it to be that you know. Right kind of collection of really good haunted object stories. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank- little virtual museums. All right. Thank you for joining us to discuss this. And uh, you'll be taking over the reins next week on Spooky TV only. And uh, we'll be at Lizzie Borden. So uh, we'll, we'll be anxiously awaiting the recorded version of that. So uh, we'll be back ourselves in two weeks here in the studio. Uh, until then, stay spooktacular. <laughs>